having spent last Lord's Day in close consideration of our conquering Christ and the various traits which prove Him to be the only champion of history and redemption. And prior to that, two Lord's Days ago, having traced the theme of this great age-ending battle through the Scriptures, we come now to verses 17 to 21 of this chapter to see the brutal destruction and devastation that will result at His coming. It's clear from God's Word that the present looming condemnation as well as the future threat of final judgment is a critical piece of the puzzle which forms the gospel message that we proclaim. We cannot proclaim the fullness of the gospel without letting people know right now, apart from belief in Christ, you are under condemnation. And if you continue in that pathway, you will endure eternal condemnation. That's a part of the message. It is the same essential wrath which was poured out upon Christ Jesus as He hung on the cross in the place of His people that will constitute the substance of the wrath that He Himself will someday execute on the final day. It's the same Christ who conquered in His death on the cross, pouring out His life's blood to absolve we, His people, from our offenses before God that will soon return to bring the whole matter to a conclusion, this time not dripping and drenched with His own blood, but dripping with the blood of His enemies. And so the scenery of this destruction and devastation that He's going to bring when He returns is painted for us again in very graphic, apocalyptic imagery, which as we've said, very often means not so much what it says, but it means what it means. It's symbolism. It's meant to present a truth using pictures. Now some would say, well, what you've just done there is you've nullified the assertion that the Scriptures are God-breathed and that every word of it is inerrant and infallible and sufficient. Well, no, we've not done that. We, we believe that God spoke through human beings and uses images and symbols to convey certain truths. The imagery is not, does not reduce the truth from being truth because it does require some explanation. The imagery means something real. And very often the imagery is, is used to give us a picture because a mere statement of the fact wouldn't convey the full truth. We, we, we wouldn't comprehend it. And even this image here, we cannot comprehend what's being conveyed. And so our approach again as we look at these verses is going to be like we've done before. We're going to look at the passage. We're going to look elsewhere in the Revelation in this book for hints and helps to understand it. Then we'll look outside of the Revelation for more help. And then we're going to deduce from all of that the import of the text. What is the text showing us? And then we'll draw some conclusions and applications from that. So I've broken up the exposition into three headings. The invitation, the opposition, the elimination. So first we see the invitation. Now, what we might expect, knowing that the Lord Jesus is coming for battle, we would expect perhaps an invitation to go out like we see with uh, Goliath as he lined up at the front lines with the, the children of Israel across the way, calling out and taunting them to come out, send somebody out to the battle. We're here for the battle. That's what we might expect. But the invitation here is not to come to fight in the battle, 
It's an invitation to a rather odd company. The invitation goes out to the birds of the air. And the invitation is not, hey, birds, come and fight. The invitation is that they come and prepare themselves for a feast, a feast of flesh, which is going to result from this great conquest. So looking at verses 17 and 18, John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Once again, there's no specific identity given of this angel. And like every other reference, we could speculate, and speculation does abound. Some suggest, and I think this could possibly be the case, that this is the same angel that's described in chapter 18 and verse 1. There it said that the angel had great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory. Now we would ask, what is it that makes the earth bright at the present time? Well, it's the sun. The sun is what illumines the earth. And so perhaps this is the same angel with that same splendid effulgent light shining around him so that it appears that he's standing in the sun. Or maybe that previous angel was also standing in the sun, but rather than saying standing in the sun, it just said his glory illuminated the whole earth. But either way, we do know, once again, as we always can be clear on on this fact, that whenever we see the angels coming forth and speaking, these are the messengers of God. They're coming to give the Word of God. They're coming to convey a divine message. This has the authority of God behind it. So the angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Or literally, the birds in mid-heaven. Now again, we could spend a lot of time if we wanted to speculating about what kind of birds are being invited. I think based on what we have here, we could uh, exclude penguins ostriches, chickens, birds that don't fly. But beyond that, we would just be speculating because it seems like all birds spend a little bit of time in the air. Now, based on what's about to happen in this passage, I think it's safe for us to fix in our minds the specific kind of bird that spends a large quantity of their time in the air hovering and looking for food, rotting flesh. Think vultures or buzzards as we call them. He's inviting these birds, the kinds of birds that feast on dead flesh. The kind of birds that if you you see two or three of them in the road on a straight stretch, you know even if they fly away, something dead is going to be laying there when you get there because that's what they do. They eat rotting flesh. This mighty angel gives out this invitation to the birds of midair and he invites them to a banquet. He says, come gather for the great supper of God. It is the supper of God. God is throwing this supper. God is is the master of the feast. God has made the arrangements. And that word supper, although while it, it can mean just a typical meal, most of the time that it's used in the New Testament, uh, very uh, pervasively, it's referring referred to uh, referring to banquets, feasts, uh, a meal at a special occasion like a wedding or a particular. Uh, Religious festival of some sort. So they're invited to come to this this great banquet that God is throwing. God is going to set the table. And notice the menu. They come to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Kings, 
would be the, the specific rulers of various nations. Captains, mighty men, horses, riders. This is a description of those involved specifically in a battle, in war. But then it comes on down and it says all men, free, slaves, small and great, all types and kinds of people. As is often the case, the description of, of the ungodly starts at the top, those who are in charge, and works its way down to all people. And the point is that nobody is, is so powerful, nobody is so important, nobody is so significant, nobody ever gets to the place in this life where they are uh, able to avoid this coming destruction. Nobody. And at the same time, there is no one so lowly, no one so insignificant, no one so, so poor and, and insignificant that they, can, that they can avoid this judgment. The judgment of God that's executed by Christ is no respecter of persons. The people that you know that seem to be the most, or, uh, the, the least abrasive, the most kind, the most gentle, the most normal, the most calm. You, you would never expect a, a crossword from them. If they are not born again believers, they are going to be subject to this judgment just like the most wicked and the most vile that we can imagine. It's the flesh of all types and kinds of people which make up the menu of this banquet to which the birds are being invited. Now let's Look in, in the Revelation, and what's interesting, the only other time that this word supper is used is earlier in this same chapter, verse 9, where the angel said to John, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now who was that? That was the redeemed. Those are believers. That's the Christians. And, and the reference there was to the, the, the great eternal feast that we will enjoy with our Lord at His coming. So you see, the revelation is doing here what it often does. It sets forth a picture to make a contrast. The, the saints of God, the people of God at Christ's return, they are invited to their banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The wicked are going to find themselves at another banquet, the great supper of God. The difference being the wicked are not going as guests, they're going as the menu. And the point again is to set at odds these two great realities. The goodwill of God in making eternal provision for His people. The fact that we will, we will be invited to sit down with our Lord and our King and our Savior and we will dwell with Him forever. And on the other side of that, the ill will of God is going to be poured out upon the wicked. God will deal with all Men, Just as God rules over all men, so all men will receive the due reward for their deeds. There are only two kinds of people. Those who are regenerate, born again, and those who are not. It's not regenerate, nice people, people trying to get their life straightened out, wicked. No. The regenerate, the unregenerate, the saved, the lost, the righteous, the wicked, the wise, the foolish, the, the living and the dead. Two kinds of people. And on this day, that's the way they're going to be dealt with. Now, this is not the first time that this concept has ever been set forth in Scripture. Remember two weeks ago when we were tracing out the, 
the, the, his, the, the scriptural um, preparation for this great battle, we looked fairly extensively at Ezekiel 38 and 39, the, the battle of Gog of the land of Magog. And this is important. It's important today, specifically, but it's going to come up as important as we move into the, ne- the next chapter. I'm going to read from Ezekiel 39 just to show you the relationship, and then later we're going to turn there. Ezekiel 39, verses 1 to 5, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward, and I will bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the people who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey, of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now notice in that great battle, it is God who is the aggressor against Gog. God is going to bring this enemy people against Israel and then execute judgment upon them and leave their bodies for the birds of the prey and the beasts of the field. Verses 17 to 20 of Ezekiel 39. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, Speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Here's God's message, the divine message to the birds and the beasts. Assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. See, we have the exact same scene. God, with a divine word, inviting the birds. He's talking to the birds and here, the beasts of the field. Come and get ready. I'm about to set the table for you. Prepare to eat. Who are they going to eat? The flesh of the mighty, the blood of princes of the earth, horses, charioteers, mighty men, all kinds of warriors. It's the same menu. It's the kind of people who've come to the battle. That's the scene that John uses as his linguistic foundation as he describes this battle. The point that we must see is that the battle between God and Gog and his hordes is the end of time battle of Revelation 19 and as we'll see explicitly, Revelation 20. So what's the point? We know we're not expecting literal militaries to line up against God the Almighty. So what's the Holy Spirit conveying through these pictures, this graphic imagery of the birds coming and eating the flesh? Remember that we're reading language written during a time when battles were very often waged in the open plains. Battles are not fought this way anymore. 
But they were waged in the open plains where bodies that were slain in battle were left so that when the battle was over, the victor was determined and the field was vacated, you would have a plain littered with dead bodies, much like we could imagine and have probably seen pictures of the Civil War, early wars in our own nation's history. A, A large field filled with the bodies of dead men. We also know that this kind of post-mortem treatment by birds and beasts was considered to be the insult added to the injury of the defeat. To be eaten in this way was to suffer a great dishonor. Remember when David and Goliath were going back and forth and Goliath said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then two verses later, David responds and says, This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your hand, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. It was the epitome of dishonor. I'm going to beat you, and I'm going to leave your body laying here for the maggots and the birds and the wild beasts to come and rip it apart. It was dishonor. Now this is especially so for the people of God. This is something I think we've lost in our culture. But as you read the Bible, you'll notice that time and time again, the people of God have historically honored the bodies of the dead. Not honored their request, honored their bodies. Abraham purchased the cave of Machpelah for Sarah, his wife and others. Joseph made arrangements that his bones not stay in Egypt, but they be carried out and buried God Himself buried the body of Moses. David made sure that the bodies of Saul and Jonathan were retrieved from battle and from the enemies and treated honorably. What you see throughout Scripture is that amongst the people of God, it would be family members and close friends who would come and take care of the burial arrangements. It was like the last great act of care that they could perform. Let's see that this body is dealt with honorably. In 2 Samuel 21, the sons of Rizpah were hanged and left exposed to the elements. And what does she do? She lays out a blanket to sit there so that during the day she could fight the birds off and during the night she could fight the beasts off. Why? Because these are her sons. She doesn't want their bodies dishonored by birds and by beasts. It was a great travesty for this to happen to someone you loved. And so to be beaten in battle... And then to have your body left for the birds of the air, that was the point is, I'm going to extend your humiliation beyond the point where I shove this sword into your gut. I'm going to leave you laying here so that even after you're dead, you're treated with contempt. The image that's being conveyed by both Ezekiel and John is that this battle is going to result in a horrific slaughter and a shame and disgrace that extends even beyond the pale of physical life. Nobody's going to mourn your death. Nobody's going to care about your body. That's the picture. The angel calls the birds to the banquet to feast on the flesh of the enemies of God. Come and get ready. Why? Because the table is about to be set. It is sure to happen. The banqueting table will be filled with bodies. In other words, there is no escaping this judgment. It's coming. You might as well get ready. That's the picture. Secondly, we see the opposition named more specifically in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the throne 
and against his army. Remember the beast represents the political economic powers of the world. We might call them the kingdoms of men understood specifically in terms of political power. That's the beast. We could say governments specifically in their opposition to God while always clarifying not simply the government as an institution of God, but as distorted by men to oppose God. The kings of the earth represent specific world leaders, those who sit atop these colossal God-hating empires. The beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies. Who are their armies? Well, we've already just seen. The, the army is all of the wicked, every person. Men, women, boys and girls. Everyone who looks at these kingdoms of men as if these kingdoms are God. Going to these kingdoms to get what only God can provide. All men, both free and slaves, small and great, all kinds of people, all of the wicked, even though now they're described specifically as those coming to this battle. And who do the wicked oppose? Him who is sitting on the horse and against his army, Christ and his people. That's the war. That's the opposition. That's the animosity. The wicked versus the righteous. As always, the powers and kingdoms of men, whether explicitly or implicitly, are opposed to God, His Christ, and His church. That's always the case. If a man is not born again, he is an enemy of God. He is a hater of God. He does not seek God. The way of peace he does not know. His hands are swift to shed blood. He came forth from the womb speaking lies. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. That's every unregenerate man. And then you have the righteous, those who are born again. Those who are unregenerate, those who make up the category of the wicked, they are enemies of God, haters of God. They are opposed to God, His Christ, and His people. Now I'll remind you that we've seen references to this war several times, and we did this two weeks ago, but most recently in chapter 17, verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. Well, who was the they in that, that chapter? The they was the kings of the earth, whose power was the power of the beast. They are at war, at enmity at strife. We could go back to Psalm 2 to see the great spectrum. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot? That's everybody. Then you get to the end of the chapter. Kings be wise. Rulers be warned. This is the natural condition of every unregenerate heart to be opposed to God, His Christ, and His people. It's just exactly what we saw in chapter 6. And I, I'm drawing this out to let you re repeatedly see the recapitulation of this book. It shows the same thing over and over and over with different pictures. Back in chapter 6, as Christ rides forth at the present time, conquering and to conquer by the power of the gospel, right on the coattails of the victory of the gospel comes the suffering and the tribulation of the saints. The more the gospel triumphs, the more it is hated and opposed. The more the saints are hated and opposed, the greater and more powerful their testimony becomes. You, you, you have, have you ever heard, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? That's how the gospel flourishes. It's always been true that suffering and affliction and persecution 
have resulted in the growth and advancement of Christ's kingdom upon the earth. As Jesus says, the wheat and the weeds grow together until the harvest. The harvest, the eradication of the weeds, is the end of the age. And near the end of the age, as we saw in chapter 11, after the church has concluded her witness-bearing mission upon the earth, according to the sovereign and hidden counsel of God, there is an apparent defeat. Apparent in that, to the naked eye, it appears like a defeat. By all earthly accounts, it seems like a defeat. It's painted there, it's painted here. Same picture. Painted again using different colors. The opposition has always been mankind and his wickedness, opposing God, following the prince of the power of the air, who is the serpent, the devil. Every unregenerate person is following the prince of the power of the air, the devil. Now, are are they all going to say, I'm following Satan? No. They're going to say, I'm just kind of doing my own thing. Right. Satan worship. That's what the devil does. Every unregenerate person. So that's the opposition. The wicked opposing Christ and His people. And then thirdly, we see the elimination. What happens as this comes to a climax? The elimination. It's at the very time of what appears to be a defeat, as it seems the whole world has gathered against the bride of Christ, that Christ will return in power and glory and destroy the enemies of His people in every manifestation. What does he say repeatedly? It's like a thief coming in the night. If the, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, repeatedly, it's going to be the time when people least expect it. And that's exactly what we see here. They're gathered for battle, and then what do we see? Just like that. The beast was captured. It's done. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. The beast was captured. Again, not a, not a literal beast, not literally captured. But what's, what's the picture? Just, what, just like we might imagine a possum or a raccoon in a cage. So also the kingdoms of this world are neutered of their authority and power in a single moment. A possum is a pretty gruesome looking creature when they're out of a cage, and so is a raccoon. You get them in a cage, and kids of all ages can walk up, poke sticks at them, play with them, shake the cage. Nobody's scared anymore. Why? Because it's in a cage. It's captured. It's trapped. It's rendered powerless. Revelation eleven fifteen, in the words there, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. In a moment, the opposition becomes no opposition. The false prophet, remember, the spirit of the age, the underlying spiritual condition of fallen men, which works in them to increase their wickedness and idolatry. The false prophet, captured, rendered powerless, relieved of its influence in this world in a moment. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. They're thrown into hell, thrown into the wrath of God. And the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of Him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Who are the rest? Well, we look back at the picture. Who's been described here? The rest would be all of the earth dwellers, all of the wicked men who had subscribed to this spirit of the age, who had been taught by the false prophet and thus received its mark upon them. 
who had worshipped the beast through every form of idolatry imaginable. The mark would be the opposite of what we are marked with. We are marked with the Holy Spirit. They are marked with the unholy spirit of the age. It's, it's their character, their driving, life-giving influence is the wickedness of the age. These rest are slain with the sword, the judgment of Christ. Again, Christ doesn't literally come with a mouth protruding or a sword protruding from His mouth. This is the judgment of Christ, the law of God administered by the incarnate Word of God. The writer is Christ Himself. He's come to judge the living and the dead. And all the birds are gorged with their flesh, filled with satisfaction, an overabundance of flesh. I invited you to the feast. I set the table. It was going to happen. It happened. It's, it's symbolic, again, for that humiliating defeat. Now, I do want to say at this point that all of this is meant to be taken as a complete picture, and we'll add to it what we see in chapter 20, the, another vision of this same war. Because you might be thinking, how can the beast, the beast, be thrown into hell if it's not a real beast? What, what does that actually mean? How can the false prophet be thrown into hell when it's, it's really more like a pervasive spirit of thought and wickedness. How are those ideas separate from the people who actually constituted them? Why would they be thrown into the hell and then these are slain? Remember, it's one picture. We put it all together as one picture of the judgment of God upon the wicked. One image of the final destruction. It's, it's dissected in these various parts because it was presented to us in these various parts to explain the character of the present age. It would be like if someone read or now watched the Pilgrim's Progress. And by the end of the story, Christian and faithful attain to the celestial city. And somebody turns it off or they close the book and they say, wait a second, I thought all Christians are supposed to be faithful. I thought all of the faithful are supposed to be Christians. You would say, right. It's a picture. It's meant to paint a, a one big picture of what happens to all of the godly. Here's the same thing. It's, it's a, one picture to show what's going to happen to all of the wicked, all of their systems, all of their entire world order. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to come under the judgment of Christ. And so we're taught here, and this is the point, this great final destruction of the wicked is going to be truly, thoroughly devastating. The judgment that's coming is parallel to the one who's executing the judgment. The mighty, triumphing, blood-drenched Jehovah Sabaoth is not going to come again to slap sinners on the wrist. He's not coming to perform a gentle and ethical, quiet, lethal injection. He's not even going to put a hood over their face so that you don't see the anguish of pain and torture as they are suffering the judgment. No, He's coming to destroy. It's going to be a, an awful sight. A horrendous sight. That's the point. Now, as in studying this text, I came across a commentator who posed a, a good question. And the question is a means to open up sort of more fully what's being conveyed here and throughout the Revelation at this point. Now, as we just saw, and if you want to, you can go ahead and begin to turn to the book of Ezekiel. The language here is taken straight from Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
what we saw two weeks ago is that this end time battle is actually described in numerous places throughout the Scriptures. So this author asks, quote, why allude to Ezekiel at this point? Especially since other Old Testament prophetic passages concerning the end time defeat of evil forces could have been drawn from. Why use Ezekiel 39? Why not take something from Daniel? Why not take something from Zechariah? Why not just go back to Psalm 2 and say he's going to smash them like a potter's vessel, save some ink, get to the point. Why come to Ezekiel 39? 38 and 39. Well, first I would answer, we're going to see in the next chapter when Gog and Magog are explicitly mentioned. But what I want you to see this morning, the reason why... Ezekiel 39 is very useful here, is because of the intent of the battle in Ezekiel 39. The supreme and ultimate goal that God has in His mind as He goes about this battle. Remember, God is the aggressor. God is coming. So we would ask, God, why have you done this? Now notice the language of Ezekiel 39, verses 6 and 7. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One, in Israel. We would ask, God, what is your motivation here? God, what are you trying to achieve? God answers, they shall know that I am the Lord. My holy name I will make known. I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. The nations will know that I am the Lord. That's God's motivation. While it does mention as a secondary influence or or, or reason the vindication of God's people, it has as its supreme goal the manifestation of the name and the power and the holiness of God. The battle results in the final clear revelation and manifestation of God's power and glory over all men in such a way as to leave them without question. God acts to ensure that His holy name is no more profaned. He's done things in the past, and men have been allowed to continue to profane His name. When He comes in this battle, the profaning of the name of God stops. Every mouth will be stopped. His name will be revered even by those who hate Him. Even by those who don't delight in Him. Their knee will be made to bow and they will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at verses 18 and 19 of Ezekiel 39. Speaking again to the birds. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan, and you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. Notice the language. What kind of a banquet is this? 
This is a sacrificial feast. This is like a feast of worship. Like the Israelites would come and offer their offerings to the Lord and then sit down and partake of some of the meal. The sacrifices were meant as a means of worship to God. Now, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see God. He'll come to His people and He'll say, go to this particular nation and devote them to destruction. And if you've got a Bible like I have that has footnotes, every time it says devoted to destruction, it'll drop down and you'll have a footnote that says, or literally, set apart as an offering unto the Lord for destruction. That's the idea of devote it to the Lord. Sanctify it. Consecrate it. Set this thing apart as an offering to the Lord for destruction. In other words, it's the language of ceremonial offerings that describe this battle. But the offerings, which are praise to God, are destroyed nations, judged nations. Their destruction is the offering to God. Their destruction is the pleasing aroma to God. Their destruction satisfies the justice of God in Ezekiel 39 and in Revelation 19. Ezekiel 39, 21, I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. Notice, the judgment of God is in order to show His glory to the nations. This is an important point. Glory is not merely goodness and pleasure and happiness and peace. No, no, the glory of God is all of who He is. And here, the glory of God is manifested in judgments. I'm going to put my glory in the midst of those nations. How? By bringing them to destruction. By making them a sacrificial offering to me. The Gog-Magog battle the great end time battle, is secondarily about rescuing the people of God and primarily about vindicating God's name, God's glory, God's holiness, just like the cross. What was the purpose of the cross? Yes, secondarily it serves to save sinners, but above that it is to vindicate God's righteousness. It is to set forth God as righteousness before the eyes of all the people. In other words, this is the exact counterpart to what Christ did on the cross. You see, Christ is the offering of of, uh, worship to God in the place of His people. Christ was judged so that we are not judged. It was the destruction of Christ that was the pleasing aroma to God so that we could go free. Christ in judgment satisfies the justice of God so that God doesn't come to us and say, satisfy my justice. But what about for those for whom the offering of Christ is not applied? What about those people? How is God going to be satisfied? How is justice going to be satisfied? How is God going to be vindicated? Here's the answer. He's going to come and destroy them. And that will please Him. It's the counterpart to what Christ did on the cross. Christ acting for His people and here God acting toward the wicked. And how does this work? How, here's the point. How exactly does God ensure 
that He receives all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise, and that no question is left in the mouth of even the most hardened scoundrel as to who is the king. How does God do it? Go back to Ezekiel. Where was Israel when Ezekiel was prophesying? They were in captivity. They couldn't do anything. They can't help themselves. They can't save themselves. They don't look like a mighty nation. They've been dispersed. They've, the broad majority of them are gone, disappeared, can't find them. Absorbed into the nations, never to see that bloodline again. That's where they were. So Ezekiel is here prophesying while the nation's in captivity. And so what God reveals through the prophet can in no way be attributed to them. They can't come out of captivity and say, yeah, see what we did? No, you were in bondage. You didn't do it. God did it. They were unable. They could affect no change. They've been rendered powerless. They're in captivity. Come back to the revelation. And what have we seen time and time again? This is how the end of history works to ensure that God receives all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise, and that no question is left in the mouth of anyone as to who is the king, who is the champion. He acts at the very moment of apparent defeat. He comes when nobody expects it so that we can't say, yeah, we got them. That's not how it works. To use the language of Revelation chapter 11, Christ returns while the witnesses are laying dead in the street. They didn't do it. He did it. So in this passage, in light of the fact that it opens up and expounds upon the Gog-Magog battle of Ezekiel, we have revealed a consistent theme that is brought out throughout the Scriptures. And here it is. When it comes to the redemptive acts of God in particular, God works in ways which cannot be attributed in any way to any man. Why does He do that? This is to ensure that God alone receives the glory. He will not give His glory to another. God cannot allow the thought to persist in the mind that maybe, just maybe, if we work diligently enough, if we're creative enough, if we work long enough, we can bring salvation to this world. He simply cannot do it. It is contrary to His nature as God. He doesn't do that. Now, we hear that and we say, right, we know that everything is for God's glory. Like the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8. All of us possess knowledge. And Paul has to say, right, it's not about you. It's about the people who don't possess the knowledge. The purpose is not simply that the saints have this understanding. Even though those of us who would say, well, we know it's all for God's glory. It's all about God's glory. We say that even though we know full well that we still war in ourselves with unbelief and very often attempt to steal God's glory from Him in the things that we do. But still yet, the point is that the nations, the opponents, the wicked are brought to see it. Right now, the thought still remains in the minds of a lot of men, we can do this. We've got this. The name of God is still being profaned among the nations. The point is that the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Of course, as believers, we know that God works in providence in all things. We know God can and does use wicked men even for good. 
But because God's work in providence is often a hidden work. Because God's work in providence uses an, an infinitely wise uh, or makes an infinitely wise use of second causes to produce things, as God works in every single situation, the thought could possibly be left in the minds of some men that perhaps it was his intellect, his might, his creativity which has produced this or that good thing. For example, we might look at crowds that would flock to a certain type of church because they, they put forth the great inventions and ideas of man. And so people flock to those types of churches. Now we might look at that and, and, and we would not be quick to say, well, look what God has done there. No, we would recognize this is, this is not God. These people done this. This was just their creativity. They, 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 they titillated the, the imaginations of men and they drew carnal men. That's not God working. Now, does that render the concept of providence absent? Does that mean God was nowhere near any of those events? Of course not. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Everything is happening according to the eternal decree. But when it comes to the redemptive acts of God in particular, God works in ways which cannot be so attributed to man. Abraham and Sarah, you're too old to have children. It's not possible. Now, I confirmed this with Christy last night that, that typically women stop having children around 45, at least by 50, typically. Sarah wasn't 45 or 50. She wasn't 60. She wasn't 70. She wasn't 80. She was 90. It's not possible. She's given a son. Joseph, the despised brother, imprisoned, forgotten in prison. The, the one time he had the opportunity, he's forgotten rises to power. Joshua chapter 6. Jericho falls. How? They walked around it and they shouted and they blew trumpets and the walls fell. That's not possible. That is irrational. Do you think that they looked at the other and said, hey, the, you yelled. You did a really... I really like what you did there. I mean, you and me together, I figure if the four of us got together, we could just go from city to city and yell at the walls. No, they knew that it wasn't them. It was all of God. Judges chapter 6. Here's a man, Gideon. He, he's a wimp. He's hiding. He's puny. He's nothing. Judges 7. God takes that puny man, whittles his army down to 300. Now, maybe 300 men can do a pretty good job. Okay? Take their weapons away and get them to smash pots. And they win the victory. That doesn't make any sense. Again, they didn't look at each other and say... Hey, the way that you smashed that pot, the way that you, you wrapped that stick to, to form your torch, I mean, I think it was you, man. You did it. N no. They, they more than likely completely dumbfounded at what just happened because they knew only God can do this. This is how He works. In 1 Samuel, David, the youngest son of Jesse, goes to battle against Goliath. No sword, no spear, no shield. And what's his reasoning? What was David's reasoning? 1 Samuel 17, 47, "...that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand." He purposefully said, I'm not taking weapons. Why did he do that? Because David was a man after God's own heart. And David lived after the same principles that God had put in his heart. He wanted to act in such a way that only God could receive the glory for what had happened. 
the biggest man in here, if I got a rock that would fit into a sling and threw it as hard as I could at your head, I'm, I'm almost positive I could not kill you. I could hurt you. I don't think I could kill you. It's not rational. It's God. This is the way He works. Consider the ultimate example. The Lord Jesus Christ. Born to an unknown virgin girl. Born in Bethlehem, the least of all the clans of Judah. Throughout his life, a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. No beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't like Saul. When people saw him, they said, he's sticking up above everybody. Make him king. No. Nothing about him would draw our attention to his physical appearance. No beauty that we should desire him. He traveled and preached in the humble language of farmers and fishermen. I've never, I've, I've never seen a preacher who did that. Most of the preachers, I'm assuming, including myself, would be too prideful to use the language of farming and fishing, and throwing seeds and drawing in a net. But that was his method. He preached. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was crucified. He was jeered at. Conquering. That's how he won. That doesn't make any sense by human standards. But this is how God works. The Romans nailed Christ to His throne. They escorted Him to the place where He would be and they literally lifted Him up to the point where He would then begin to draw all nations to Himself beginning with a Roman soldier. I'll take one of those and a thief. From His cross. It's irrational. It's contrary to human thinking. But this is how God works. Why? So that He gets the glory and we do not. What's the principle? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He doesn't say that's a special case for Paul. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. A blanket statement of God's methodology. This is how God works. Do you want to learn something about God? Do you want to know a, a, a fact about the character of God? His power is made perfect in weakness. That's how He works. When it comes to our own salvation, 1 Corinthians 1.21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Folly, by human standards, absolutely. It makes no sense. What we're doing right here makes no sense to the unregenerate man. This is the craziest thing. But this is how God has chosen to save sinners. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why, Paul? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. His method, His purpose. My power and weakness so that you can't boast. Where were you when God saved you? Romans 6.20 said you were a slave of sin. That's where you were. You weren't coming out. You were the slave of sin. What were you when Christ died? Romans 5.8 says you were still sinners. Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead in trespasses and sins. Especially for all of us. All of our sins were future sins when Christ hung on the cross. We were still to be born sinners when He died. 
God has come down in Christ to save the slaves of sin while we were yet sinners and while we were dead. Abraham, it says, his body was as good as dead. We were dead. The womb of Sarah, dead. Our entire soul, dead. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Why, Paul? Lest any man should boast. It's not, it's not of yourselves. What's the, why would God do it that way? So that no one will boast. So that no one has any bragging rights. Romans 3.27 Where then is boasting? It is excluded. That's how God works. Well, what are we going to boast in? There's none. He's done it. This is an overarching, undergirding, universe-shaping principle of the divine mind of God. He will not lend out His glory. He will not leave room for boasting. He uses what the world throws away. He uses what is lifeless. He works through what is powerless. He chooses the weak, the poor, the feeble, the mumblers, the stutterers. God said, hey, that stone that you builders rejected, that stone is the cornerstone. You said it wasn't good enough to be used at all. I'm saying it's the very best stone in Christ Jesus. That's how He works. That's the point of God's coming in this battle. The way that He does. We come back to Revelation 19. We've repeatedly seen the plight of the saints at that time. We go back to chapters 2 and 3. Were those saints just really knocking it dead? No. They were suffering. Some of them had died. We've repeatedly seen the language of trampling and defeat. It's when the church seems to be at its lowest that Christ conquers. Why? So that no one may boast. God's glory is at stake. And that's why He does it this way. So then, we could say positively, the method of God's working in us and through us will always be one which shows His power and reveals our weakness. Or we could say negatively, God does not perform His redemptive works in ways that we could possibly misconstrue as coming from ourselves. He won't work that way. It's against the divine principle. Now very often we live, or as we live the Christian life, or we imagine what the Christian life to be, we want to see, I believe that we really do want to see God work in us. And I believe we really do want to see God work through us. But very often at the same time we want to hold on to this idea that whenever He does work, it's going to be tethered at least a little bit to something I can boast in. Look at social media. What is it right now amongst evangelicals? It is nothing but showing, look at what we did. And look at what we did. And look at what we're doing. And look at what we did. Everybody wants to let the whole world know what they're doing in that sphere. Now, we don't know about the countless men who are serving in places you'll never hear their names. You'll, you'll never be told their stories. They're not posting. You don't know it. That's where God's working. But we want it to be tethered to something in us. Even if it is a good thing, very often our attitude is one 
which looks forward to claiming some glory. Hey, I like to preach good sermons. I don't think it's a bad thing to preach good sermons. But I, I know deep down in my heart there is always something there that would like to get a little piece of the glory for something I've done, and that will not work. We want God to work, but we don't want our weaknesses to be apparent. Just like the Jews, they wanted to make Christ king. Get this. The Jews wanted to make Christ king rather than submitting to the fact that He was born king. We'll come and make you king. No, I'm already king. Right now, where I stand, in these clothes, with these men, with this message, I am king. That's what they could not endure. They wanted Him to be king in their way of power, not in His way of weakness. Many today want the kingdom of God to grow upon the earth, but they want it to grow in ways that can be seen. When Jesus said, it does not come in ways that can be seen. And very often these capitalize on men's abilities and efforts and not on God's power. It's all men. So we have this balance. Well, I want God to do this, but, but, I, but I really would like a piece of that glory pie. When we go about our lives this way, we generate within our, ourselves an attitude that is opposed to weakness. We're opposed to it. We are opposed to feeling needy. We are opposed to recognizing our impotence. We want to feel power. We want to show our abilities. And I can prove it to you. Number one, do you struggle with spending extended periods of time reading and meditating upon God's Word? Here's a little pastoral counsel. It's not because of your schedule. It's not because of your comprehension. It's because you don't believe you are truly ignorant and need to be taught of God. You don't believe that you're crawling with remaining corruption and must be sanctified by the truth. You don't believe that you honestly have no idea how to approach anything in this life apart from God telling you how to do it in His Word. You don't believe that. You're not desperate. You're not weak in your own eyes. But when you get weak and ignorant and clueless and helpless in your own eyes, truly, when that hits you, you're going to see God's Word as a necessity. And your schedule will change. Your devotion of mind will change. Well, it's just so hard for me to, to, to focus. When you see this as the most important thing on planet earth, it's not hard to focus on it. You'll get there. You'll be in the Word of God because you finally realize, I'm dead without it. That's life to me. I have to have it. That's my bread. Until then, you won't. Secondly, do you struggle to devote time to pray? Again, a little pastoral counsel. It's not because of your schedule. It's not because you don't know how. It's not because you don't know what to pray for. It's because you don't believe that you are truly helpless apart from God. When you become weak, poor, and helpless in your own eyes, and you realize the severity of the task before you on a daily basis, the various duties of being a Christian in the world, you'll pray. And that's the first step in recognizing what your calling is in the world, is prayer. I don't take anybody seriously who wants to do anything if, if I can't say, how much time have you spent on this matter, in prayer, before God? Well, you know, I'm just trying to reason. And, and Nah, 
You're not interested. You want to talk about it. You don't want to do it. You don't have a burden. Because when the people of God are burdened, they fall on their knees and they beg for God's power to act. Prayer is the first step, not the last step. We don't start acting and then say, well, let's ask God to help us along this track. No, that is first. Three, do you struggle to see the necessity of the local church in your life? Do you see time spent with the body of Christ as an optional, extracurricular activity? More pastoral counsel. It's not because you're socially awkward. It's not because you've got something more important to do. It's not because God gave you less hours in a week than He gave everybody else, because He didn't. It's because you don't realize that whatever gifts the Spirit may have given you, they aren't all the gifts. You don't have them all. You don't believe that you need the fullness of Christ ministering to you, and that He does that through His body, which the Word of God says is the fullness of Him who fills an all in all. His body, the church, is the fullness of Christ. You believe that you are essentially Christ Himself. You've got all of the gifts. You've got everything you need. Whatever others might bring to the table, it's really pointless because you've got it all. That's why coming into the assembly is not a priority. And you will not love the church until you realize that you need the multitude of the gifts of Christ's Spirit. It'll just be an activity. Like going to the store, like going to the park, going fishing. I think I'm going to do this, but I've got some other things I've got to get to. You won't see it as the ministry of Christ on the earth at the present time. What's God's principle? My power is made perfect in weakness. Study to know your weakness. Now I know that there are some here who would say, listen, I know all too well how weak I am. I'm pitiful, I'm worthless, I'm less than nothing. I'm ugly. My clothes don't fit. We just, we just go down the list of things that we don't like about ourselves. And we think that in, in merely confessing it, we've gotten to this point. But there is a carnal and self-serving way in which those kinds of confessions come out. It's really just you know, throwing a line to see if somebody will bite it and say, well, no, you're not, honey. You're cute. Or whatever. We want somebody to you know, help me out here. Help me out here. We assume that admitting weakness and impotence to others or feeling it in ourselves is sufficient. The problem is it doesn't lead to anything to just say it. That would be having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. The power of godliness, the impetus to act based on what God has revealed. You can say all day long what God has revealed, but acting is the power of godliness. We might say or confess weakness and ignorance all the time, but if it doesn't result in turning to the one who is not weak, you've made an empty confession. You've shown you know enough to be damned, but not enough to be saved. Because you won't go to Him. When the Spirit of God reveals to us our needs, He also makes a way of escape. He stirs in us the impetus to actively pursue the means The means. He does this by reminding us of those means as they're set forth in God's Word. What has God said that you need? 
Well, I don't know. Well, then go to where God has spoken and find out and pray in that regard. When God acts in us and through us now, just like when Christ returns in judgment, it's a confirmation of our faith. When God actually does work in you and God actually does work through you, you can say, that's exactly what He said He was going to do. His power is being made perfect in my weakness. And then you'll say with the Apostle Paul, therefore, I'll boast all the more in my weaknesses. It's a confirmation of faith. It's the stamp of God making His power and glory known in spite of the weaknesses of man. So, to summarize the passage, look at Christ coming in judgment in what appears to be the darkest hour and in so doing showing all the world that the battle is the Lord's. Let's pray.